0: Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Jordi. With us today is Sarah Penner, and we're going to be talking about her second novel, The London Seance Society. I have to say for those of you who haven't picked up this book yet or read it you need to do so ASAP I couldn't put this book down and it was the perfect mix of mystery intrigue paranormal and romance and honestly it may be early but I have to say it's probably going to be one of my favorite of the year so I'm so excited to have you on thank you for joining us today Sarah thanks so much Jordy for having me today I'm super excited to be here So before we dive in deeper, could you share with us what the London Seance Society is and what inspired you to write it? Yes. So
2: the London Seance Society takes place in 1873, which was high Victorian London, where ghosts and paranormal and spirits were all the rage. And the wealthy were regularly hosting parlor room seances for their wealthy friends. So That's the year that this book takes place, and it tells the story of a woman named Vaudeline, and she is an internationally esteemed spiritualist, particularly skilled in the art of seance, and she is known worldwide for her ability to conjure the spirits of murder victims to ascertain the identity of the people who killed them. So she works with widows, she works with the police, and in many ways, she's Solving crime and finding justice. And she gets a knock on her door one day from a young woman named Lena, who is a skeptic. Lena does not believe in ghosts, but her sister was recently killed under suspicious circumstances in the city of London. The police have given it very little attention. And despite being a skeptic, Lena is desperate to find out what happened. So she's willing to set her doubts aside and she essentially asks Vaudeline to teach her the art of seance. And as the two women begin to investigate this crime, they soon suspect that perhaps they are entangled in one themselves. So that's kind of the, the basic premise of the story. What inspired me to write this book is I've always wanted to write a ghost story, and I love reading ghost stories, and I, I just always knew that I would someday tell my own, but I wanted to stay away from the haunted house trope. So we see that a lot. And I love books that take place in haunted houses, but I really wanted to do something fresh and different with my ghost story. So I decided to learn more about seances and the Victorians and their obsession with seances. And I learned that in the Victorian era, one of the only professions in which women were more respected than men was as a spiritualist. And once I stumbled on that research tidbit, I knew that I was on to something because my books, for anyone who's read my debut, The Lost Apothecary, you would know my books are very feminist in nature. They feature strong women who are kind of ahead of their time intellectually or as it relates to their profession. So. I knew that I was onto something with that story. So that was my inspiration. And now I have my ghost story and it's, it's
1: centered around
2: all around seances and the Victorians' obsession with spirits.
1: Yeah, that's so awesome. So while you were researching, what was it about women during this era that were respected more as spiritualists?
2: Yes. So one of the reasons why women were more respected in this field is because men were viewed as too conceded and closed off to allow a spirit to take control of their psyche, whereas women were viewed as more open to this possibility. And so these women would travel around the country or the continent and charge outrageous ticket prices to essentially have these crowds watch them perform these public displays of mediumship and psychic power. And that we, by and large, saw mostly women doing this. Now, all of this said, one of the questions that this raises, both for the characters in the book and then readers of the book, is what's real and what's illusion. So anytime we're talking about spirits and public displays of mediumship where people are paying to, to view it, that's ripe opportunity for tricks and ruses and swindling and literal smoke and mirrors. And a lot of these mediums did swindle their unsuspecting ticket holders and viewers. One of the themes that I knew I wanted to work into the London Seance Society was what is truth and what is illusion. And the characters are questioning that, therefore the readers are supposed to be questioning that. But I learned probably 15 or 20 different common tricks that happened in the seance room. And I don't want to spoil it for readers, but a lot of those tricks are mentioned throughout the story. One that I'll give as an example is mediums would hire these young boys called chimney boys. They were five, six, seven years old. And they typically they were hired to Slip inside of a, of a chimney and kind of clean out the flue with a brush to get rid of the ash and the soot. But mediums would also hire these boys to hide in the chimney during seances. And at a, at a predetermined interval during the event, these young boys would rap on the chimney to make it sound like a spirit had just sort of appeared or was making their presence known. So there were all sorts of things like this that I had a lot of fun learning about
1: when I was doing my research. Yeah. So you had to do obviously a lot of research for this. And I have to say, I was hooked from the dedication because in the dedication, you mentioned something about your mom suggesting to take you on a seance. So have you been a part of a seance? How, like, was yep. that when you were younger? Yeah, so the the dedication that you're referring to, it's
2: funny because my mother was the first one to kind of plant the seed that maybe this ghost story I wanted to tell could be related to seance. And the reason for that is my mom is a very strong believer in the spirit world. I'm much more like Lena in the story. It's not that I don't believe in ghosts, but I haven't had a personal experience with a, with a ghost, and my mother believes that she has. And I respect that belief of hers completely. So she said to me, this was a couple of years ago. She said, Sarah, I want to go to a seance. And I kind of laughed it off at first. And she, she said, no, I, I don't want this to be like an entertainment thing or a joke. I want to go to a real seance with an actual medium. So I said, okay. So I did a little bit of research and it just so happens that there are two spiritualist villages remaining in the United States one of them is in New York and one of them is about 90 minutes from where i live here in Florida so my mother and i got in the car we drove to northeast of Orlando which is kind of this small rural village and we stayed two nights at an Airbnb and on the second night we went to a séance and I was admittedly kind of hoping for some sort of concrete, tangible evidence or proof of ghosts. I was hoping to see something or experience something interesting. That didn't really happen. But what did happen was that there was a couple across the room and they shared with us that they had lost their infant grandchild a few months earlier. And this child's mother, who was their daughter, they were estranged from her. So they had never really had the opportunity to develop a close relationship with that baby. So they were going to these weekly seances to kind of connect with that child. And it was giving them a great deal of peace. And they felt that they were able to kind of move forward in their grief through these weekly seances And so it dawned on me in that moment, like this is not about black and white proof of ghosts or the afterlife. This is about respecting that this is part of their grieving process. And there are so many things in life, whether it's religion or politics or sexuality, where we don't see eye to eye as other people, and we don't need to be seeking what's right or wrong. We can just Seek a place of respect. So that was a really poignant outcome from that seance that I didn't expect at all.
1: Was there anything else in your research that was kind of either shocking to you or interesting that you weren't necessarily seeking out to find? But once you did, you were like, oh, I have to include that in the story. Or maybe during the writing process, was there something that you learned about yourself?
2: So a lot of the research was around the Victorian traditions surrounding death and dying, and I found those really fascinating. We know that some of our traditions now, like wearing dark colors to a funeral, a lot of us are aware that that originated in in the past. The Victorians were very rigid about their mourning attire, even to the point of dictating The width of the band around a man's top hat. It could be a couple of centimeters wide if he was relatively distanced from the deceased, like maybe a cousin. But if it was a a spouse or a child, that silk band around his hat could be up to seven inches wide. So very specific and rigid rules like that. But then there were some other things. This example is slightly more morbid, but the tradition of bringing flowers to a funeral home or surrounding the casket with flowers, we don't really think about it today, but in that originated in the Victorian era because they didn't have the ability to embalm bodies. And so people would bring in flowers to mask the odor of the body. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. There were a, f- a number of things that I was able to weave into the actual story. For instance, typically a household that was in mourning, they would freeze their clocks or set their clocks to the time that the deceased person died. They would turn face down any images or photos of that person in the household. They would, of course, keep drapes covered over the the windows. So there were a number of things, a number of things. The Victorians were so superstitious and um, when they were bringing or taking a body out of the house, they would take it out of the house feet first for fear that if anyone living made eye contact with the the person who had died, that they would maybe be next or they would be somehow called forth into the afterlife. So a lot of superstitions like that that were really fascinating for me to read
1: about. Yeah, just thinking of it while you were talking. And the research should explain like where some of these superstitions came from or like why they thought those things.
2: That's a good question. I didn't really dig into the origination of the actual superstitions and traditions. I know that related to the mourning attire that I mentioned, Queen Victoria was very strict about her own attire rules. After the loss of her husband, she actually wore mourning attire for the rest of her life. So that certainly would have impacted society who were looking to kind of follow the lead of their queen. So I thought that was interesting. But as for the other superstitions, I don't really know where they originated. That that would be something really interesting for me to look up.
1: so the story is full of mystery, love and spiritualism. So what was it like trying to tie all of these elements together while staying true to both the story and the Victorian era?
2: So, yes, I kind of like to think of my books as cross-genre, and you just gave a kind of a really good summary: mystery and romance. In The Lost Apothecary, my debut, there's some magical realism. In this book, there's paranormal. Um, and I like this cross-genre approach, particularly for historical fiction, because it allows me to weave in elements of fantasy. And when we talk about historical fiction, you kind of have a few different routes you can go. A lot of my author friends who write historical fiction. Their books are biographical in nature, meaning that they've chosen one or more real people who once lived and they're kind of creating stories around them based on the limited information that we know, or maybe taking one experience that that person had and fictionalizing the rest of it. But neither of my books have any real characters in them. And I like that. I think I'm going to continue doing that because it allows me to weave more fantastical elements into it and not have to adhere to kind of these rules of what we know about real people. The part of your question about staying true to the Victorian era, I did a fair bit of research on that era, what people were doing for work, what they eat and drink, what their hobbies and habits are. But once I kind of had that foundational knowledge, At that point, I was just able to create the story that I wanted, and I knew that the world of the occult was kind of my main atmosphere. I really tried to adhere to the Victorians' customs and traditions for that, and then the rest I just left up to my imagination.
1: What aspect of the story were you most excited about during the writing process, and was it the same at the conclusion of the story? So the last third of the book is a seance and the first two thirds of the book,
2: the characters are leading up to this very pivotal event where basically everything that the reader has been learning about and trying to figure out is going to now kind of come to a head and we're going to figure out what's right, what's wrong, what's been, what's really been going on beneath the surface of the story. And that all happens during the seance. So that was the part that I was most excited to write. And at the beginning of the book, I've outlined a seven-stage seance sequence. And so we get to, to see those seven stages in practice in the second half of the book. And so that was very fun for me to write. There's a couple of big twists and reveals that happen during that seance that readers aren't expecting. The ending is, in my opinion, very satisfying. It's an ending full of vengeance and surprise. And I've had a lot of readers say that they just absolutely did not see that the second to last chapter coming at all. And so that, that was all very fun for me. There were some elements that I had planned out in my outline. You know, I knew who my heroines would be and what the truth would be. But then there was plenty of room to to explore and play around. And at the risk of giving away any spoilers, I won't delve too much into that. But there were some twists that I incorporated that even took me by surprise, which was really fun as the author.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Where like where was the inspiration for the seven stages of the seance? Like, how did you come up with that?
2: Yeah, so the seven stages of the seance, which is entirely fictional, but I've had a number of readers say they they read the whole book thinking they were real. When I started writing a book about seances, one of my first tasks was to figure out how does one have a seance? Like, how do you conduct it from start to finish? And what I realized really quickly is that there are no rules, there's no protocol, there's no standard process, but I knew there would be a seance, if not more than one, in my book. And so I had to have some sort of structure for that. Like I can't just have people sitting down, holding hands, and then all of a sudden ghosts start appearing. So in many ways, that seven-stage sequence, it also kind of builds suspense because There are a few of the stages that, you know, for instance, the entrancement phase where the spirit actually embodies the medium, that can be really intense and a lot of chaos can happen during that stage. And so in some ways that sequence is used as a tool to build suspense and kind of the reader knows what's coming. So They know that things are going to get pretty crazy in stage five. So when we're on stage three or four, my hope is that they start to kind of feel their heart rates ticking up a little bit and anticipating what's about to happen.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. I was definitely one of the readers who thought that that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. I can't say how much I love the book because usually while I'm reading, I'll take notes on the side or you know, underline things. And I just found myself like finding stuff that I wanted to write down and be like, I'll come back to it later. Mm -hmm. Like, I just have to keep reading. I have to get, like, I'll come back. Uh, What is the message or feeling that you would like people to take away from your book after they finish reading it?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I kind of hinted at this earlier, but throughout the book, well, let me back up. Grief and losing people that we love is a universal human experience that we can all relate to. I lost my dad when I was 28, and he and I were very close. So I'm certainly familiar, unfortunately, with the the discomfort of grief and losing someone that you love. But I think kind of like I said earlier, when you start to talk about ghosts and seances, you're going to automatically raise a lot of dissent. And because people either believe or they don't believe, and that can cause disagreements conflict, and it doesn't have to. Like, it it doesn't have to be yet another thing in our society where there's a right and a wrong. We can all just kind of respect that someone else might have a different grieving process. And we see Lena, who's my protagonist in the story, we see this story open up as she's a skeptic. And as the story goes on, she starts to understand that um, what's happening in the seance room is, is bigger than just what's right and wrong. Or uh, You know, ghosts are not black and white. So um, I think that's the main lesson is just this idea that we need to respect and then keep our hearts and our minds open to the possibility that something might be different than what we think. So Sometimes unexplainable things happen in our world. We might see a shadow. We might feel a cool draft. We might think of someone that we haven't thought of in years, and then all of a sudden they text us. Like there's there's a weird energy to the world that I think a lot of us can't explain. And I love the idea of remaining open to that and embracing what little magic or coincidences each day might bring.
1: Yeah, kind of like you were saying, you know, you haven't heard from somebody in a while and they text you or sometimes people show up in your dreams that you haven't Mm -hmm. seen or heard from in a while. And yeah, I like that. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to mention or anything else in general? I'm super active on social media and I have a lot of
2: resources for writers as well. So I find I've been doing a lot of speaking and I find that my audiences or listeners always, we always have some writers in the group. It can be a, a really lonely field. And so for those writers who are querying or attending conferences and feeling uncomfortable, whatever it might be, trying to figure out how to progress on a manuscript. There's a lot of really great resources on my website aimed at writers and events that I have coming up. For instance, I'm going to be at the Historical Novel Society doing a master class on revising a manuscript and another one on social strategy. So Definitely those resources are out there. And then I'm super active on social media, particularly Instagram. So if any readers want to say hello, I would love to hear from them. In terms of what's next, I am working on my third book. As much as I love the old mysterious alleyways of London, I, I knew that if I were to write a third book taking place in that setting, that I would kind of be pigeonholing myself and readers would be coming to expect that time and time again so my third book takes place on the amalfi coast in italy and it's dual timeline there are all sorts of mysterious shipwrecks there is a marine archaeologist who goes scuba diving in one of the shipwrecks and finds something unusual and there is a legend about a coven of witches who lived along the sea and were descended from the mythological sirens and they may or may not be responsible for a curse in the area so That's what I'm working on now and having a lot of fun with it.
1: I'm super excited for this one to come out. That sounds so awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. You bet, Jordi. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been great.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a